Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to HealingConversationsWithMildredLynn.com. Good morning, everybody. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and thank you for joining us for our show today. We're going to be talking to Kimberly Weefling, who is in California. Kimberly, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Mildred. On your website, I noticed, and I want to share it with our listeners. All my professional life, I've struggled with what are broadly referred to as human skills. Emotional by nature and rebellious by choice. It's sometimes been extremely challenging for me to show the sage advice, be hard on issues, but soft on people. Kimberly, what do you really mean by that? Well, you know, I grew up in a family that was pretty rough and tumble. I like to say I was raised by wolves. And uh, we are a blue-collar family, a lot of outdoor stuff. I didn't really learn a lot of human skills from my family My dad could string together a lot of cuss words, and that's one of the skills I did learn from him. But, you know, being gentle and soft and polite and socially acceptable wasn't in my repertoire when I left home. And then I followed a path of studying physics, science, seven years, graduate school, graduating with a master's, and we didn't have any communication classes in physics. So I thought science was the cure to everything, technology. And when I got into the so-called real world for my first job at Hewlett-Packard, I realized, oh, my gosh, I missed something. I need to be able to communicate with people. I need to be able to work with a team. And I really i am obsessed with getting things done. But if you can't communicate and you can't work together with a team, you're not going to win a team sport like business. How did you ever become so self-aware? Well, I think I might have been born with that. My mother claims my first sentence was, please pass the salt. And I just seemed always to be thinking about the meaning of life and the purpose of things. It seems to have come naturally to me through my DNA. So I'm not really sure I can explain it to anyone else. But I have felt very vividly Uh, The nature of life, it's so raw and it's real for me. And sometimes I can sense the entire planet and it's tough to get away and just get some space where I can be away from all that self-awareness. Everybody's so focused on doing, doing, doing. Who do you need to be to do the work you do? How do you nourish and support and sustain yourself, especially with all the travel that you do, all the international travel. And I know you have some nuggets in there to share. Oh, well, I have to be extremely committed to something greater than my own personal comfort. (laughs) That's one of the keys is to have a purpose 
that draws me to this work. And I think, honestly, my purpose is manufactured by me. You really think about it, Mildred, we're all here riding on a big rock through outer space on a big trip around the sun. And I'm not sure if there is any real purpose ultimately to our lives, but every day I get up and I at least pretend that there's something I need to do that matters, if that's only to help someone else or to ease their journey or to somehow make this earth a better place. I've always wanted to be a person who would transform planet earth for the better. I don't know why I had the gall to think I might be able to do that, but that's been on my list of things to do for at least 20 years. So I just get up with the illusion that my life has some meaning beyond just making myself comfortable and amusing myself. And in order to sustain that, I really need to have downtime, sleep a lot, go in the hot tub, take time where I can just unplug. That's a little tough for me because I love overstimulating myself. But it's so exciting when you're working on planetary transformation. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. I know for myself, the type of work that I do, I do a meditation in the morning and I do a meditation in the evening. Actually, it's a visualization. And that serves as two powerful anchor points for me. And that helps me show up in a good way to do the work that I do. Do you do anything like that other than the hot tub and taking time off? Do you have a, a spiritual practice or an emotional practice or a mental practice that you do every day that helps center you so you can show up in a good way to transform the world? Well, I have written on my calendar every week the magical four breaths a minute. If you can just slow breathing down to where one breath takes about 15 or 20 seconds, it is amazing how quickly our biochemistry and our outlook can transform. You know, I'm not the kind of person who has the patience to sit and meditate. I've tried and failed. Uh, but if I can just breathe... In and out very slowly for a couple of minutes, I can get recentered. I also love listening to music, and that is a way that I can transport myself out of the day to day busyness into another place where I can be a bit more tranquil. Kimberly, you also play the drums, don't you? I seem to remember that. You with a picture with a drum. That's right. And when you're drumming, there's very little else you can think about. You know, it's hard to drum and talk at the same time let alone worry about anything. So drumming is a more or less moving meditation. And I highly recommend drumming, dancing, singing to people who can't sit still and meditate. It is so cathartic to be able to let yourself go. I mean, it's really tough to be too intense in a drum circle. And I've been accused of being too intense, but when I'm drumming, I fit right in. Kimberly, with the intensity that you're mentioning, is part of that intensity passion? Is part of the drive? Like, are you a driver personality? I'm just curious here. Well, if you ask the people I've worked with in the past, they would say I'm a driving driver. But I know I'm very passionately intense, emotional, and committed to an outcome that matters, some meaning, more than a profit, more than just getting some project done. So I just put myself into things as if they matter. And honestly, if what I'm working on doesn't matter, why do I want to do it? So that's where my intensity comes from, is at least the illusion that what I'm doing matters. 
Have you always had that feeling? I know you've probably always been a driver's driver, and I can understand that like a musician's musician. Have you always had that intense drive? And when you were younger, was it more difficult to manage? Well, I think it's genetic, to be quite honest. All of my family are this way. And when we get too many of us in the same room, it can be a little bit dangerous <laughs> because we're all pretty intense and driven. But yes, being younger, it was tough to manage. And learning how to deal with that intensity. I used to tell people, hey, you're lucky. You can take a break. But I have to stay inside my head all day long, okay? <laughs> so I never get a break from being me. You've thrown yourself into an international environment where you have cross-cultural trust pollination on the go. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on trust and also if you have any tips about building trust that you can share with our listeners. Well, that's very astute of you, Mildred, because uh, the lack of trusting relationships was shown in some research from MIT to be the number one cause of failure in global teams in the business world. And you can certainly relate to, I'm sure, the lack of trust in personal relationships and the damage that it can cause. Uh, trust is very interesting, and there's several kinds of trust. The two I like to think about, trust that someone can do something, that's a trust in their competence, and then the trust that they will do it. So just because they can doesn't mean they will, but we need to have both kinds of trust in people. So if I want to be trusted by somebody here in this country, the United States, or anywhere around the world, I have to somehow show up as a capable, competent person who is also committed to doing what I need to do to keep my promises. And when you come right down to it, trust is the result of making and keeping promises over and over again, showing up and doing what people expect you to do, what they expect that you promised to do. It doesn't hurt, by the way, to show some sincere appreciation, to show sincere interest in what the other people's lives are about, their culture, their language. I found that sincere interest and sincere appreciation build a lot of rapport with people. Start by building a relationship, and then you can build a trusting relationship. But the bottom line is make and keep promises. That's the surest, fastest way to build trust. I like that. And working in another culture, as I said, there's a layer on top of the building the trust because your frames of reference can be different. And you may do something one way and it may be received another way. And how do you handle that? I've worked with people from over 50 different countries. And for the last eight years, I've been traveling to Japan just about every month for one, two or three weeks. And I've learned a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes. And I've found humility works. Saying I'm sorry, sincerely, that works. Uh, making sure that people understand I am a foreigner. I don't know what's going on. Please help me. Asking for help. Also, on the other side of things, when something strange happens to me, I have this tool called Assumption of Positive Intent. And I try to imagine what story would have to be true for the other person's behavior to make perfect sense. And that I, too, would act in exactly that way. So that's the kind of thing that helps me put myself in the other person's shoes and imagine what their life might be like. 
or just take the time to learn about another culture. I mean, you just go on Google and look up Japanese culture, norms, society, blah, blah, blah. And you can pretty much in a couple of minutes find out the things you shouldn't do. Like the first thing I did when I went to Japan, I was eating rice and I stuck my chopsticks right upright in the rice bowl, which is what you do when someone's dead. So <laughs> my, my friends were horrified and I was like, what, what? Oh, we have a good laugh about it. And they call me Obaka-chan, which in Japanese means cute, stupid one, something like that. Means cute, stupid one? <laughs> yeah, that's my pet name in Japan. That's cute. The other thing that I learned as I reviewed your work and I immersed myself and explored it a bit is that you, you frame challenges in a unique way. So you frame impossible challenges in your own verbiage, your own speak. So I'm wondering if you could share how you tackle challenges and why your approach works. Yeah, it's really not so complicated. As Walt Disney once said, I love to work on impossible things. There's less competition. You know, people say things are impossible because they can't immediately imagine how to do them. When you think about it, how much do you personally know about everything in the entire universe? I mean, most, most people agree that they know less than 1% of everything. So if something doesn't immediately seem obvious, realistic, or practical to us, there's no reason to call it impossible. Unfortunately, really smart people do that all the time. Like my favorite physicist, Lord Kelvin, who was the president of the British Royal Society, said in the late 1890s, heavier-than-air flying machines are impossible. Now, that was just 10 years, less than 10 years before airplanes were invented. And by the way, there were birds, right? Birds are heavier-than-air flying machines. But notice how people like that speak. They say, it's impossible. They don't say, heavier-than-air flying machines may take hundreds or thousands of years to develop and rely on technology that we can barely imagine. They just say because they don't personally know it, they say it's impossible. So I know going in, it's probably not impossible. It's probably somewhere in the 99% that I don't know. And then I use a methodology that has served me very well that I learned through the Stanford D School, innovation, design thinking, project management over the years. And that is four steps. Start with a big why. Why do I care? What's the purpose? Why does it matter? And the big who, who cares? Who can help me? Who can hurt me? Who's impacted by it? And big what, what exactly, what exactly am I trying to achieve? Because one of the main reasons that people can't achieve impossible goals is because those goals are not clearly defined. It's like the woman who has arthritis in her right hand and she prays for both hands to be the same. And then she has arthritis in both hands. You know, I mean, this is what we're talking about. So big why, big who, and big what. And then, and only then, do we go on to the big how. And by the way, you find a team of people to help you because I only know 1% of everything. But if I have a team of thousands of people working on it, I'm pretty sure that they know the other 99%. And if I encourage them by listening to them and including their ideas, I'm pretty sure that we can eventually tackle these impossible challenges. And my observation is when I hear something called impossible, even today, it's about 10 years before it happens. 
Well, I love what you're saying because as you were talking about the big four, I was thinking you can take this and apply it to your personal life too. Absolutely. And how, I don't know if the word is easy to call things impossible because impossible just shuts stuff down. So if you were going to reframe impossible challenges, what would you call them? I'd say it's a challenge that scares us. And I think that people call things impossible whenever they're protecting themselves against failure or disappointment. In this society and in many society, failure is to be avoided. In Japan, failure is fatal. Mistakes are shameful. And we need to really embrace mistake-making and risk-taking as necessary steps towards achieving something that's worthwhile. You know, taking risks thinking big, starting small, moving fast, prototyping, and failing forward. Failing forward in the direction of our goals rather than standing immobilized, thinking, well, I'm not going to take the first step unless I know how the whole path's going to unwind. Because it's kind of like getting into your car and saying, I'm not starting the engine until I know exactly the route and then all the lights are green. Well, honestly, you just start driving, and when you get to a roadblock, you go around it, and that's how we need to approach making breakthroughs and achieving things that seem impossible but are merely difficult. Kimberly, when you've reframed impossible challenges and you start working with teams using the protocol that you just shared with their listeners, when things start to move, when you start to gain some traction, when you start to get some positive results... How do people usually respond to that? Because their thinking previously, before you entered the equation, would be, this is impossible. So how does that shake out in terms of feelings and feedback that you get? It's really amazing, actually, when you see their faces. They're not the same people anymore. I just finished a seven-month program, part of which was to take people through a real-life project something that seemed impossible seven months ago. And then at the end, they're presenting to their executives in Tokyo. And these people don't even look like the same people. In the beginning, here's my colleagues from Japan, hunched over saying, sorry, 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 and very hesitant and seeming unsure of themselves. Last week in Tokyo, I saw them shining like the sun. And you see their faces and you look into their eyes and now here's a person who knows that he's capable of achieving what others seem to think is impossible and he can do it again. And it is really thrilling to see that that transformation when you see that someone has acquired the ability to achieve what they thought was impossible. They can never squeeze back into the same small figure ever again. So would you say that part of your adding meaning to the world is reframing impossible challenges into a a context and a structure that people can take and apply to other areas of their life? When you saw the change, the shift in these people, how does that fulfill you or sustain you? Is that when you hit the jackpot and go bingo, yeehaw? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of yee-hawing going on inside of me when I see this. It's the reason I was put on planet Earth. I finally found out why I was born when I started to do this work. And I just can't tell you how exciting it is to be able to give people access 
to their greatest potential and full self-expression. That is just a thrill for me. You have highly developed communication skills, and I know they've worked really well for you. So are you able to identify your communication style and then share why it works so well for you? Oh, I'm so fortunate that I learned my communication style from a wonderful mentor of mine named Barbara Fittipaldi. She taught me what's called generous listening and possibility speaking. And those two magical communication tools have transformed my life and the lives of many people I've touched. It might be the single most important communication tool set that I've ever encountered. So the willingness to speak about a possibility in the absence of any evidence that it's possible without knowing how it might come to pass, the willingness to stand up and say, I have a big crazy dream. This seems impossible, but if it were possible, woohoo, it would rock my world. And to be able to share that story from a future perspective without feeling the need to say, but that could never happen or, well, it's probably unrealistic. No, to just speak it with courage and clarity. And then on the other side of things, to listen generously. When people do have the courage to speak their dreams, to listen to them as if what they're saying is gold and it's my job to find the gold in it. Like their genius is shining through and to listen to them with every molecule of my being so that they feel truly heard and that they can continue to have the courage to share their great, big, crazy dream, whatever it is. So it sounds to me like you've shared your big, crazy dream with other people. How do, how do people usually react when they get Kimberly full on sharing her big, crazy dreams? Well, I would encourage you to try that with your generous listening colleagues and friends. Because whenever you start to share your big dream, something that seems impossible, but if it were possible, would transform your life, your community, your business, your world for the better. Other people, the first thing that they think about if they're generous listeners is, well, I can think of at least three ways to do that. So so here I am speaking about what seems impossible to me, but if it were possible, it would transform my life. The people who are listening to me say, well, Kimberly, I can hook you up with my friend, or hey, there's a book you should read, or here's a resource that could be helpful. And before you know it, I'm tapping into the 99% that I didn't know, and this thing that seemed impossible for these generous listeners, they're saying, Kimberly, you just haven't thought about it long enough. There's... Plenty of ways to get started on this. So it invites participation and it invites colleagues to pitch in and help you. So, you know, they don't, they don't think it seems impossible. So there's this asymmetry. This is very important asymmetry that when I'm talking about my impossible dreams, other people are hearing them and saying, what's the big deal? Oh, I love that. I just felt a big weight move off my shoulders. I'm going to try it out. Definitely. Kimberly, what does mentoring mean to you? I've benefited from mentors all through my career, and it might be the single most important thing that has gotten me to where I am today, besides my fortunate genetics of being so dang scrappy. Oh, scrappy. <laughs> Kimberly, where did that come from? Scrappy. Yes. <laughs> When I was writing my first book, Scrappy Project Management, I didn't have a title for it. 
And I thought, gosh, you know, what's the word that describes me? I didn't want to pick some word that sounded overly formal. And I just thought, that word scrappy, that really describes politically incorrect, socially unacceptable at times, and determined beyond reason to get things done, perhaps in ways that other people wouldn't have thought of or maybe wouldn't even approve of. And that's scrappy. And it was... Before Obama started using the word scrappy, and it seems that scrappy has become quite a popular word in the last decade since I published my book. I'm sure it's not all because of my book, but scrappy is a perfect description of me and my family members. Kimberly, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is what is the story about the chicken? Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> Well, you can imagine me going on airplanes a lot. He's a frequent fryer. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) I use that chicken for two metaphors for leadership. One is, of course, you cannot be a great leader if you're a chicken. You have to be courageous. It's scary. Leaders are leading into the future. It's unknown. And you've got to go there even while feeling afraid. And it's not about not being afraid. It's about being able to act while you're afraid. And the second thing is you take a rubber chicken and you hold it at shoulder height and let the darn thing go. Now, what's going to happen? The chicken's going to fall to the ground. And you ask people this crucial question. What caused that chicken to fall? And you know what most people will say, Mildred? Gravity. Gravity made the chicken fall. It's not my fault. Gravity, it's the earth. Really, I asked them, is there any other explanation of why this chicken fell? And I let go of it. Oh, yeah, Kimberly, you let go of it. That's right. Now, if I'm a helpless victim, I focus on gravity, but I can't change the gravitational constant of the universe. But if I am a leader, I look at my contribution to what happened. I let the chicken go. Yes, there's gravity. There's always gravity. Get over it. Focus on what I contributed to the situation and how I might make a difference by acting differently. That's what the chicken stands for for me. I will never look at that chicken when I see it in a picture the same way again. It's a, it's a great Thank you. Famous. He that is. chicken has name. He's His name is Kabunji, and he's been pictured in the newspaper in Japan. That chicken is more famous than I am. <laughs> I'm just going to reel back to mentoring once more. So you have been mentored. Who do you mentor now? Do you mentor through your work? What does that look like for you? Oh, I both am being mentored and I am mentoring. So I think it's both directions are very important for me. Uh, My mentor right now is Dr. Edgar Schein, 87-year-old father of organizational culture, very famous gentleman. I'm privileged to have lunch with him once a month and to learn from his great wisdom and experience. And mentoring, I am mentoring young people who are starting their own businesses. And I'm also advising people from around the world who are in bigger businesses on how they might proceed in their careers. So I tend to do what I call in-the-moment mentoring. Somebody who's graduated from one of my leadership programs or workshops will contact me, call me, or write to me and say, Oh my gosh, Kimberly, I've got a huge, scary opportunity. I'm not sure what to do. And they'll ask me for some advice. Or I'll have some startup entrepreneur ask me to help guide them through the almost certain failures of being a startup entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. So those are the kind of things I enjoy doing. 
But my favorite thing is to mentor young women who want to contribute to the world by being great leaders because I think uh, women are really going to help everyone. So I focus my attention on how to inspire women to lead courageously, especially in the business world because businesses touch everyone on earth. You know, something like UPS has business locations in every single country in the world. It's a far greater influence in our world than any government. So women leaders and women in the community tend to help their families, their kids, their communities. It's been proven, and people sometimes ask me, well, why don't you help men? I'm like, I am helping men by helping women. On your website, you have a very robust volunteer section, and you preface it all by saying... You're obsessed with transforming the planet Earth for the better. When did you come up with this phrase? And I would love for you to take some time to share some of the volunteer activities that are near and dear to your heart, because there are quite a few. Yes, thank you. Well, in 1995, Barbara Fittipaldi asked me what my purpose was, what I was committed to more than being comfortable, more than the approval of my peers and my family and friends. And I told her, I want to transform planet Earth for the better. And I don't even know where that came from. It's just popped right out of my mouth. And it's weird. I mean, I know it's completely ridiculous to think that I'm going to transform the planet. But then over the years since then, I realized Hey, I don't have to do it alone. There's lots of other people who are working on it. And I might not finish before I die, but at least I will have moved the ball forward. So that's where it came from. And part of the way I do that, I mean, I have to make money, right? I do some work and I earn a living. But I also do a lot of work that doesn't pay anything. For example, I'm working with Sustainable Silicon Valley, This is an organization that's committed to creating a sustainable region that shines like a beacon for the rest of the world and says, look, here we are, a thriving, abundant community that produces more energy than we consume, that sequesters more CO2 than we generate, and that uses only locally available water. And we are thriving people with a net positive impact on our ecosystem. And I think that is a very bold vision, and I want to be part of that. So I've been supporting Mariana Grossman, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer for Sustainable Silicon Valley. And I've been supporting their board by facilitating their board retreats. And I think that's making a difference, at least in our small region of the world. You still find the time to volunteer four causes that you're passionate about. And what it sounds like to me is that you're taking your existing skills and ability and wisdom and knowledge and applying them to that environment. So you're not starting from scratch. You're bringing to the table what you have in your basket and saying, hey, I can offer this. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I love what I do, and I can do it for money, or I can do it for love, or fun, or all three And since I'm the president of my own company, I can say yes to whatever I want to say yes to. So when someone contacts me, like, for example, a couple of months ago, NASA called me and said, we'd really love to have you come and facilitate a team building for us, but I'm not sure we can afford your normal fee. And I'm saying, 
hey, a chance to work with NASA? Are you kidding me? I'm not negotiating with NASA. <laughs> I will pay you guys to let me work with you. So, uh, you know, I didn't get paid my full fee, but I do what I want to do because I love it and I can make a difference that's positive and make a contribution for people. So why not? I really like that. You know, I was at a meeting recently and there was a lot of focus on, well, I guess when you're new starting out in an industry or you're starting a new business, a lot of the focus is on putting a roof over your head and food in the fridge and having a bed to sleep on. It's just your basic life stuff. Sure. And from my perspective, you need to create an equation that is meaningful to you. Like, for example, NASA called you, oh, what a thrill. What a thrill for you, especially with your science background. And it was worth it for you to talk to them, to bring your skill set to the table. Who knows where that will lead? But obviously, you were you were so present with that, and you recognized the opportunity for what it was. You didn't get all in a knot that they might not be able to remunerate you with dollar bills. I'm not a wage slave. You know, I'm not doing what I do in exchange for money. I'm doing what I do because it's who I am and it's what I'm here on this planet to do. And sometimes I get paid for it and sometimes I don't. But I always do it to my fullest capacity with the greatest intensity and commitment. I don't think people are gratified by just exchanging their work for cash. I think people are gratified when they do what they're put on this planet to do and fulfill their mission on Earth. And of course, sometimes they need to get paid for it so we can survive. I dream of a world where work would be decoupled from compensation. That's a little bit complicated. I don't think I have the answer for that, but I look forward to it. Sounds like your big dream. One of those big dreams that seems impossible, but are only 10 years away. <laughs> it impossible. <laughs> now, now, Kimberly, how do you maintain balance and establish priorities in your life? Because you have a full place. Well, I think that everybody needs to have a priority list handy at all times. I've got mine in my calendar. I've got short-term priorities, number one, number two, number three. And I try not to have more than three because other than three, I really can't focus on more than three at a time. And then I have my longer term priorities, more like my big picture vision, number one, number two, number three. And if I have those in my calendar at all times and I update them once a week, that gives me the discipline that I need to stay focused on the critical few out of the important many. And anybody who doesn't at least write down their priorities, short-term and long-term, has no business complaining about how busy they are. I like that. I like that very much. And talking about priorities, what's coming up for you in the next year? I'm really pumped to hear what's Kimberly up to, besides traveling with the chicken. (laughs) Well, now I have made a switch to not traveling as much. Because I decided it was a priority for me to spend time in my community, with my family, with my friends. So what's up for me is to rediscover who am I when I'm not traveling all the time? How do I participate here in the exciting Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area? How do I reconnect with friends and colleagues and recreate my business here? I mean, obviously working overseas for many years... 
I didn't keep my business development pipeline full in the Silicon Valley. I was too busy to do anything. So now I have to rebuild those connections from scratch and figure out how I can participate in the economy here and make a contribution. Uh, also, personally, some of my friends just stopped calling me because they said, oh, I figured you'd be out of town. Well, now they're starting to call me again. I'm starting to see girlfriends. I'm starting to get together with colleagues that I haven't seen for years, talking with people like you, Mildred, that I haven't seen for ages. Yeah. So this is what's up for me this year. That sounds really good. And I have to compliment you, Kimberly. We've we've been in contact, you know, in fits and spurts over the year, but I have years I have to say any time that I've contacted you or emailed you, you have always replied. And I'm sure that that's happened with other people too, and I admire that, and I respect that because I knew you were traveling, and I knew you were you were in a busy lifestyle. How do you do that? How did you manage that? <laughs> well, sometimes I don't reply right away, but I <laughs> I have a little rule yeah. that I behave like a decent person of integrity, and I think that includes responding to people who reach out, and at least even. People who reach out to me, spamming me sometimes, I kindly reply and say, please take me off your list. I have no interest or need. Yeah. No, I think it's really honoring the other person to give them a response. So I make a point of catching up on my email. I don't always do it right away. And I make a point of at least uh, keeping up with people on social media. Social media really helps. It's not the same as a face-to-face -face relationship but I can experience my colleagues and friends a little bit, at least through the magic of Facebook and Google Plus and Line and WeChat and what other things are out there. Yeah, and I think it feeds back into what you had talked about earlier about building trust, because by receiving that email reply, it gives you a warm feeling toward the other person. It's, it's well, just, yeah. And it's more efficient, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I know there's statistics on this pardon me but my scientist here is coming out <laughs> i mean when you reach out to somebody on average it takes four to five times to get a response and women give up after four times and men give up after three times now if i had to reach out three or four times to people in my circle of friends i pretty much stop being friends with them and i have done that because occasionally I call up one of my friends and say, you know, I've left you phone messages every month for the last six months, mm -hmm. and you haven't gotten back to me even with a text message to say you're too busy. Mm -hmm. Really? Really? That's a friend? I don't think that's a friend. So mm -hmm. I think that's just rude. So I try to be as kind as I can. Kindness does matter. And I'm very grateful that I'm not so famous that I don't have time to reply <laughs> to my colleagues, friends, and compatriots, right? It yeah. would be a pity to be somebody so famous that I couldn't keep up with my communications. Well, I certainly appreciate what you're doing, and I know it's tough when you have so many priorities. Now, if someone wants to go to your website to read your blog, learn more about what you do, can you share your website address with us, please? Well, it's hard to spell, <laughs> okay. but my name has, I should have changed my name to Foster or Smith long ago, <laughs> but my name is spelled W-I-E-F as in fun, L-I-N-G. And if you go to weefling.com, you'll get the real serious brochure looking website and then if you go to KimberlyWeefling.com, you'll see my personal work. And what I'm doing now in the next year with my colleagues is at another website called SiliconValleyImpact.com. Much easier to spell, 
SiliconValleyImpact.com, me and seven of my closest, bestest friends are going to transform Silicon Valley the same way we've been transforming Japanese companies all over the world. Really? Oh, my God. I have to go there. I have to read this. <laughs> and I have one other offer for your listeners. If you have a story you'd like to share, I really would love to hear stories that can benefit women in business. And I have a website called scrappywomen.biz. Now, it gets a lot of visitors who think they're going to find porn there, but it's much more exciting than that. It's women in business inspiring other women in the business world to keep going, not give up, and be the leaders they were born to be. So we have a blog. We post guest blogs. And Mildred, I'd love for you to post a blog and link to your radio show. And any of your listeners who have something valuable to contribute will be happy to receive their blog posts. Excellent. I do feel like we packed a lot of information, great information, to our healing conversation, so I thank you for that. And I'm hoping, since you're recreating what your life is going to look like in terms of business and personal life and all those goodies, I hope that you'll consider coming for a little visit to the Napa-Sonoma wine region, and maybe we can sit down and have a nice cup of tea or a glass of wine together and catch up some more. That's an irresistible invitation, Mildred. You know I'll be there. Well, thank you very much. Listeners, we're talking to Kimberly Weefling, and we've just had a great chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll have another episode of Healing Conversations with Mildred Lynn next month. And in the meantime, go on out and enjoy this beautiful day. Bye for now, Kimberly. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mildred. I feel healed. Okay. We hope you enjoyed the show. Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions featuring Deb Carousella, Heisey Lutmers, John Carousella, and Mildred Lynn. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to HealingConversationsWithMildredLynn.com. 